Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James Bijan, and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes is running things in the background. He's recording, and he'll be editing and uh, delivering it to you, our listening audience. Uh, let me put a plug in once again for the Theopolis app. You may be listening to this episode through the Theopolis app, in which case, welcome to the Theopolis app. Uh, but if not, the most convenient way to keep up with our podcasts and videos, and also to find collections of videos and podcasts that are organized by topic, uh, the most convenient way to do that is by subscribing to the app. It's a $7 a month uh, subscription, $70 per year. Uh, and uh, it's also has a growing number of other lecture series. Uh, we just put out my uh, lecture series on the the ones and twos of the Old Testament, Samuel Kings and Chronicles. I did a weekend course here in Birmingham uh, uh, last month, and uh, that's been compiled. And uh, Brian is working on getting uh, uh, our Easter term course lectures, which was on Pauline theology. Uh, those lectures will be available on the podcast along with lecture notes and reading suggestions uh, and uh, be like a, a little modular course that you could take at your at your leisure. Uh, those are the first two that we're putting out. We're planning to put out others like that as we go, and they'll all be released on the app. So the app is uh, is a good resource for you, not just for the podcast, but for lots of other things. Uh, we also have got a read section on the on the app now. We have things you can listen to, things you can watch, and now things you can read. Uh, we've turned a series of blog posts into uh, short ebooks. Uh, we've taken longer blog posts and turned them into ebooks. Uh, sermons that I have that I delivered in the past that we've been turning into ebooks. An essay of mine that uh, uh, I wrote some time ago on the films of Whit Stillman that uh, ended up being uh, lost on my hard drive for a number of years. That's been put on. Uh, Jim Jordan's Through New Eyes uh, is available on the on the app. So there's a a lot of written material and a growing uh, growing collection of written material on the app, as well as things to listen to and to watch. So subscribe today and uh, listen to our podcast through that venue. We are in the middle of a series uh, of podcasts on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, today, we'll be talking about Deuteronomy 11. And Deuteronomy 11 is the closing section, the closing chapter to the first word section of Deuteronomy. The 10 words or the 10 commandments are given in a in a slightly different form in Deuteronomy 5. It's slightly different from what we get in Exodus 20, but that 10-word uh, collection is what structures the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, and chapters 6 through 11 of Deuteronomy are the first-word section. And there are a number of things going on in this first-word section. Uh, first of all, you can see that you can see that there's this is a this is a section partly because of the themes. There's repeated references to warnings about following other gods. Uh, there's uh, commandments to obey the Lord, to love him, and to serve him, which are different versions of the first word, thou shalt have no other gods for me, positive ways of stating the first word. Uh, but we also there are also structural indicators. Uh, there's a, a number of references, as we'll see in chapter 11, directly back to chapter four, uh, chapter 6, rather, uh, and the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's repeated in several of the following verses are repeated in chapter 11, so there's this uh, very strong connection with chapter chapter six. Uh, also, the phrase "rituals and judgments" concludes chapter thirty-two, uh, chapter chapter eleven rather, in verse thirty-two, 
And that's uh, the same phrase that's used at the beginning of chapter five, which begins the whole section. And one of the effects of that is that the, the rituals and judgments are the words of Moses that he's speaking at Moab uh, on the plains of Moab before they go into the land. And the use of that phrase in, in conjunction with the Decalogue elevates the words of Moses to be more than human words. Moses is the spokesman for Yahweh. And so the rituals and judgments that he commands and the, the exhortations that he gives in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy are not just human commentary on the Decalogue, but it's the rituals, judgments, and commandments that have become a package of things. It's not just the Decalogue that needs to be repeated uh, in order to maintain the Decalogue and Israel's life in obedience to the Decalogue as they go into the land. In order to maintain that, the Decalogue needs to be enhanced and added to. You need some uh, additions to this original tradition of the Decalogue in order to maintain the tradition, because Israel's going into new circumstances, Israel's entering the land, they're going to be uh, faced with new temptations and challenges and tests, and they're going to have new tasks, and there's changes in the law that take place as they go into the land. And so there's this uh, linkage between the, the, the original revelation that's given at Mount Sinai and the revelation that Moses gives at the plains of Moab. Uh, that also links up Moab to Sinai as uh, key places in Israel's memory. Moab is the place of the renewal of the covenant before they enter the land, as Sinai was the place of the original cutting of the covenant as they came out of Egypt. Uh, and um, so you, you have that that parallel between what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy on the plains of Moab and what happened at at Sinai when Israel first came and cut covenant. You also have linkages between Moab and Kadesh, very, very strong parallels between Moab and Kadesh. Kadesh is the place where Israel was supposed to launch their invasion of the land and they rebelled. Now they're on the on the cusp of that invasion again at the as they come to the plains of Moab. And the question of obviously, are they going to repeat Kadesh or are they actually going to launch a an invasion of the land as uh, as they're commanded to? Uh, is is Moab just going to be another Kadesh? Or are they going to reverse Kadesh, as it were, by committing themselves to the covenant and by actually following through, trusting the Lord as they go in and conquer the Canaanites? So there's this um, the structural the structural indications in in the opening chapters link together the the Ten Commandments with Moses' instructions, uh, and also therefore link together Sinai with Moab and also Moab with. Kadesh. One last thing about ch chapter 11 in general that I think is makes this a, a, a fitting conclusion to this section of the book. The whole book of Deuteronomy, as we talked about at the beginning of this series, is laid out as a kind of covenant document. Biblical scholars have pointed out parallels between ancient Near Eastern kind of treaties and the way that uh, Deuteronomy is put together. The, the parallels are not exact, but there's at least a formal similarity between the way that uh, ancient kings entered into covenants with their people uh, and the way that Yahweh, the king of Israel, enters into covenant with his people. So the whole book is uh, a covenant document. Um, chapter 11, I think, is a mini covenant document. Um, there's a declaration at the beginning that Israel must love Yahweh. They must be loyal to Yahweh as the covenant people. He's their covenant head. Uh, then there's a brief recounting of the historical events that have led them to Moab. Moses refers to the uh, to what the, the Lord did in uh, Egypt and to the Exodus, 
and to the trials in the wilderness and to Dathan and Abiram and what the Lord did to Dathan and Abiram. So in a covenant document, you have this kind of historical review and you have a short historical review here in chapter chapter 11. There's a specific commandment, keep, keep the commandments of the Lord, love him and serve him. There's a promise of the land, the, the grant of the covenant that's described in uh, verses 9 through 17. There's an elaborate description of what the Lord is going to do, what the Lord is giving them, how he's going to care for the land, how it's different from Egypt. Uh, and the, the chapter ends with a uh, declaration of blessings and curses. Verse 26, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. That's the very same language that Moses is going to use at the end of Deuteronomy when we have the elaborate blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28, when we have the curses and blessings that are pronounced on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Those two mountains are mentioned here in chapter 11, and uh, Moses exhorts them to choose life and not death, to choose the blessing. So chapter chapter uh, 11 is kind of a mini covenant document in itself, uh, which suggests that as we come to come to the close of the first word section, the first word is in a sense a summary of the whole law. If Israel keeps the first word, loves Yahweh their God with all their heart, soul, and strength, if they fear him, if they follow him, if they keep his commandments, if they serve him with their whole hearts, then they are keeping the rest of the law. And so it's fitting that this first word section conclude with something like a mini book of Deuteronomy, because the book of Deuteronomy as a whole is kind of summarized in in a nutshell uh, within uh, within the first word uh, and the demands of the first word. Most begin chapter eleven with again this uh, repetition of the command to love Yahweh, to uh, guard him, guard his charge, keep his charge, to keep his and guard his statutes, ordinance, and commandments. Uh, Couple things to, to I wanted to highlight here. One is the phrasing of verse one. It's a, a repetition of the verb shamar, which is to guard, and then a noun that's built on the verb shamar, mishret. Uh, and shamar mishret, translated as keep his charge, is used elsewhere in the Pentateuch to describe the Levites' responsibility to guard, to do guard duty at the tabernacle. Uh, Jacob Milgram has pointed this out in a number of studies that this phrase has a kind of technical meaning of do guard duty at the tabernacle, prevent unauthorized intruders from coming into the tabernacle. Uh, and it's specifically a commandment giving, given to the Levites uh, in the opening chapters of Numbers. But here in Deuteronomy, that phrase, I think it's only used here in Deuteronomy in, in 11.1, uh, but the verb shamar has been used repeatedly in the opening chapters. It's used a lot in the book of Deuteronomy. But uh, so far as I can remember, it's never used to describe the Levitical task of guarding the sanctuary. Instead, it's guarding and preserving the statutes, ordinances, and commandments of the Lord, the rituals and the judgments of the Lord. It has to do with guarding your heart, lest you fall away and are deceived, guarding yourself, uh, guarding uh, the people of God. What's primarily a Levitical task performed at the sanctuary in uh, the book of Numbers and Leviticus has become a task for the whole people of Israel. Uh, so there's a kind of expansion of that guarding duty. Originally, Adam is the guardian of the, of the, uh, of the garden. The Levites and the priests are the guardians of the sanctuary. And now that's expanded further, Israel is a nation of priests, and they're standing guard over the laws and commandments of the Lord, but also over the garden land and over themselves and over the people as a whole. 
So the use of that guarding language is quite, uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a departure from what has been emphasized earlier in the Pentateuch. Uh, the other thing I wanted to highlight in verse two, something we've commented on before is kind of the compression of generations that we have uh, going on in, uh, in Deuteronomy. Moses is addressing people who are, many of them have been born since Israel left Egypt. Many of them were children when Israel left Egypt. That first generation has died, and now a new generation has come up. And yet when Moses addresses them, he doesn't address them as a people who have been told about events of the past. And he doesn't address, he doesn't talk about the Exodus and all the events that have happened since the Exodus as things that are just of historical interest. Uh, he's bringing those events of the past and that past generation to the present so that the these memories of Exodus, these memories of the wilderness, become the memories of the current generation. This current generation is is treated as if it were the Exodus generation, even though literally it's not. He's compressing those generations kind of for rhetorical and theological reasons to emphasize the continuity, of course, of, of Israel and to emphasize the demand that's on this generation. They've been told about what's happened before, and uh, it's as if they were there and seen it, and they should live as if they were there and seen it. The memory of these events should be so strong in them, so decisive in them, uh, that it's as if they were eyewitnesses of the Exodus. You might also say that a lot of the people in that crowd about to enter into the land would have witnessed these events for themselves as those who are under the age of 20, um, males under the age of 20, or um, women of any age. And it seems to me there would have been a significant contingent of the people who had been present for the entirety of the Exodus experience. It was the males from 20 up that died in the wilderness. There's such an emphasis on what they've seen, what they what they know. Um, verse 2, you must know, you must consider. And then, of course, in verse 7, your eyes have seen all the great work that Yahweh had done. Um, I'm wondering just a, a pastoral issue here and or in an observation just about the history of Israel and even uh, the history of of uh, Israel in the in the Gospels is seeing these things, experiencing these miraculous events, these astonishing acts, uh, doesn't appear to have the kind of efficacy um, that we often think that it does. So the Israelites come through the plagues, come through the Red Sea. And, you know, shortly thereafter, it's like they just, it never happened. Uh, so the miracles don't, don't, they ought to elicit faith, but they're not guaranteed. They don't guarantee anything. The people that witnessed Jesus miracles. And of course we could go from Exodus all the way to Jesus and talk about various miraculous events and what it what they led to and what they didn't lead to in the people too often the people just don't uh, decide to follow the lord even though they've seen these great miracles and they're exhorted to and they should but they don't and i've always found it pastorally helpful to warn people against looking for miraculous signs as if somehow if there was some great miraculous sign that the lord was able to give you 
that that would settle things for you and you'd be faithful thereafter. That just doesn't seem to be the case. And for most of the people in the history of Israel and the church, you know, 99.9% of people never experienced any of these things. And yet they're still, they, they read about them. They should know them. But, um, and what they also should know is, is the people that saw them and experienced them weren't always faithful to what they saw and heard and experienced. So there's this exhortation here to uh, to live in terms of what they've seen, what they've experienced, but that's not that's not a guarantee of of loyal covenantal love for Yahweh and for His people. And I think people need to remember that today, especially. I think people would would wish that God would give them some great sign in the heavens or something like that. And then the problem with that is um, there's the next day. And then the week after and the month after, then they then would they remember these these things? Would they would they reinterpret what they saw to be something else? So I think it's important for people not to rest their faith on on the experience, direct experience of miracles, but on uh, on God's word and the explanation for the miracles uh, that are given to us in his word. Yeah, I think the. I could put a, a, a kind of a positive slant on that. So you don't depend on the the dramatic experience per se, but in order to for Israel to be Israel and to be faithful, in order for the church to be faithful, those great events, which are miraculous events, have to be cultivated in memory. So there's a there's a the positive side of that is that the uh, uh, the exodus and the wilderness, uh, the wilderness experiences, uh, need to be commemorated in song and in ritual and in festivity and in uh, the reading of the word. Uh, so the, the the memory is kind of ritualized, and that's the way that that's the way that the miraculous event, which is not repeated, becomes a source of collective identity and collective mission for for the people of God. Yes, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be entirely negative about that. The the great acts of of the Lord of Yahweh and of uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the New Testament are certainly amazing, astonishing acts of love and self sacrifice for us—the cross and resurrection and all that, for sure. And I guess maybe one of the ways I'd put this is uh, you've got you've got it. It's happened. It's happened in. Uh, you know, these astounding ways, especially in the New Testament with the Lord coming himself in the flesh and and not just performing miracles of power, but miracles that are symbolic of his love and care for us and in the healings and and all those kinds of things. And then, of course, death and resurrection of Jesus. And don't look for, you know, silly kinds of miraculous signs because the great and mighty acts of God for Israel and for the church in Christ have been done. And as you say, Peter, good. We ritualize that every Sunday. We proclaim it every Sunday and we remind ourselves of it and we remind God of it as well at the Lord's table. And he He answers our prayer petition and he gives us what everything we need. So yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't, it, 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 it wasn't intended as a correction. I was just thinking it, I agreed with you that uh, you need to 
caution against reliance on yeah. you know the, the next dramatic event but dramatic events have happened and how does that how does that kind of infuse itself into the life of a people i think that's the that's the pastoral that's Good. the pastoral care so you know I, I, the kind of thing you're talking about in one sense would be the kind of nostalgia for uh you know i wish i would've been around in the time of jesus and i would i could have walked where he walked and i could have uh, followed him directly and heard his voice. Exactly. Um, yeah. But uh, and you're right to say no. That's not right. <laughs> we have everything that we need. Uh, we're actually because the Spirit has come. Uh, it's good for us that Jesus has gone away. That we're not in that situation, uh, and we have everything we need through these uh, acts of kind of collective memory of those very events that uh, of the events of Jesus' life, which are so dramatic. And the particular kind of slant of all these miraculous events seems to be discipline, doesn't it? So um, in verse 2, consider the, the discipline of, of the Lord your God, um, which is then expanded on verses 2 and 3. And, and then it seems to continue, doesn't it? What he did to Egypt, um, verse 6, what he did to Dathan and Aviram and, and so on. And it, it's just... Um, it's quite striking, isn't it, that these um, Israelites would have all, yes, seen Egypt um, disciplined, but would have just known the the sadness of seeing God's judgment. Perhaps they would have come from families who had firstborns um, killed because they didn't cover the house in blood. Um, almost certainly their ancestors, like older families, uh, uh, older fathers, they say, w- would have died in the wilderness, and it, it would have been a particularly sad death, presumably, because they would have known that it was um, a judgment from from the Lord. You know, not not the kind of you know, all death has got some sadness, but at the same time, when a old godly man or, or woman um, you could go to a funeral, there, there's so much to um, rejoicing with a faithful life life and yet all this would be just tinged with sadness wouldn't it and and it's that discipline particularly that it seems um israel are exhorted to remember here one of the things that uh, uh struck me as i was as i was preparing for the podcast was the rebellion of dathan and abiram that uh, james has just alluded to mentioned in verse six moses describes what the lord did in egypt that's the plagues presumably what he did at the Red Sea, engulfing Pharaoh and his armies. But he also, the Lord also directs his chastening at Israel. So what he did to Pharaoh, what he did to Egypt's army, what he did to you, and then verse six, what he did to Dathan and Abraham. The thing that the thing that uh, I hadn't really thought through or picked up is the fact that you got this Dathan and Abraham, sons of Eliab, who is the son of Reuben. So Reuben is the firstborn, of course, of Jacob. And this is kind of a... Uh, uh, this is kind of a fall of the firstborn again. Reuben fell because he took his father's concubine, but you have now Reubenites that are rebelling in the wilderness. And that got me thinking along the lines of the the, the fall of the firstborn. The emblematic event that Moses recounts, the emblematic event of judgment, uh, in uh, here at least, is the, the fall of descendants of Reuben, uh, who recapitulate, as it were, the fall of Reuben himself. Uh, which seemed to me to be a kind of window into thinking about the entire history of Israel in the wilderness. 
this is the way I end up thinking about it. You have this uh, constant theme in the book of Genesis of uh, the elder son is replaced by a younger son who is ele- eventually elevated above him. And that happens, that happens repeatedly in the book of Genesis. Everybody knows that. But then it just seems to drop out of the picture. You have a few instances of it elsewhere in the Pentateuch, but it's you have it, you have it come up sometimes in the in the historical books, but it doesn't it it doesn't really seem to be as prominent, hugely prominent in Genesis, and then it just kind of fades out. But it occurred to me the whole history of Israel from the Exodus to the land is another version. Uh, it's a variation of that same plot line that uh, the elder son is the Israel that came out up out of Egypt that was born in Egypt and came into the wilderness. They fall like the firstborn the descendants of the firstborn descendants of Reuben here in, in verse six, they fall in the wilderness. And then a new generation emerges from the wilderness emerges from the barren wilderness. And it's this younger generation that's actually going to enjoy the inheritance that the Lord has promised. So you don't have two sons, you have two phases of Israel's history, but it seems to work in something of the same way uh, where you have the, the elder serves the younger, the elder is replaced by the younger uh, and elder Israel is replaced by a younger Israel that's uh, going to going to uh, conquer the Canaanites. Yeah, there, there seems to be. I've I've kind of picked up, I think, um, and quite a lot of that going on in in terms of wordplay um, here. We had in the last chapter um, the place Moserah mentioned, and and that's kind of from the same uh, or just a sound alike of um, Musar here in uh, discipline and. Um, here with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Reuben, um, notice how the, the earth opened its mouth, it says, and swallowed them. And swallowed them is um, the Tivla M. And so the last four letters of it was is built around the, the root for Balaam's name. And the last four letters of it are actually the, the, the four letters of Balaam's um Name and it it then sort of feels significant that yeah Reuben falls and Simeon is next in line. Um, but obviously Simeon is then the one whose tribe is particularly led astray um, in Numbers twenty two uh, what twenty five really um, uh, by the Moabites and Balaam's um, influence. You know, and Simeon's line particularly is. Um, hard hit there and it, it just feels that there is sort of being traced out through here that the kind of the spread of a sin throughout a generation and even then the second in line being caught up in it here yeah that's very interesting um james i that's uh i've uh, thought i've noticed wordplay in other in other occasions but i'm uh i won't uh, occupy podcast time with uh, speculations about that the uh Exhortation uh, uh, in chapter 11 continues on in uh, verse verse 8. You shall keep every commandment which I'm commanding you today. Uh, commandments make them strong so they go and possess the land. Uh, the command Doing the commandments of God makes them capable of doing d- God-like things. Yahweh is the one who dispes- d- displaces and dispossesses the Canaanites. Uh, if Israel keeps covenant and is loves the Lord and keeps his commandments and they become like him, a dispossession of Canaanites and taking the land. And it's not just taking the land that's in view here, as verse nine indicates, it's prolonging life in the land. Uh, when Ralph Smith joined us for our podcast, he was emphasizing the fact that the fifth word 
uh, is kind of a, a framework for understanding much of what goes on in Deuteronomy. Yahweh is the father of Israel. Uh, Israel is the rebellious son. Moses and Aaron are particular rebellious sons. But if Israel honors his father, Yahweh, then his days will be prolonged. That's the language of 11.9 here, which is the language of the fifth word. They'll prolong in the land which the Lord is giving. So what, what Moses has in view is not just obey the commandments so that you can uh, receive the inheritance of the land and possess it, but obey the commandments and love the Lord your God so that you can retain the land over the long run. Uh, you honor your father and the Lord will, uh, and your father will give you that land and he'll ensure that it's, uh, and it remains yours as, uh, as, you, as you honor him. The description of life within the land here is also interesting, particularly as we see the way that Israel's festal calendar would become bound up with the agricultural system as well. Egypt depended upon the Nile for its irrigation and the human irrigation system that was established around that. But the promised land, by contrast, depends upon rains and can't be irrigated by Israel. There's a dependence upon the Lord that continues throughout their yearly cycle. And that dependence upon the Lord is particularly um, connected with events, for instance, such as the Feast of Tabernacles, which seems to have within it that um, request for and dependence upon the Lord for rain, as we see in Zechariah 14. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. And we can think about the water pouring ceremony and other things that represent the rain falling upon the land, the altar representing the land. And that water cycle is, among other things, it's a symbol of divine blessing with the communion between the heavens and the earth. Earth. There's the lack of rain in the original creation, which is irrig irrigated from the ground. But then the union of heaven and earth first occurs with the breath of heaven blowing into the man formed from the dust. And then that communion between heaven and earth continues in the water cycle. And Israel's pattern of agriculture is really one that is defined by these um, periods of rain, fairly short periods of rain within the yearly um, cycle, the first rains in October to November, which would enable the farmers to plow and sow, and then more rains in December to February. Um, and that description of Israel is also something that's picked up in various ways, for instance, in um, Ahab's desire to turn Nabal Naboth's vineyard into a vegetable garden, a sort of reversion of Israel from this state that the Lord has created of a land that's dependent upon the rains to a, a land that's similar in its irrigation and its structure to Egypt. And so Israel's, the form of the land of um, Israel is one that's conducive to the sort of faith that the Lord wants to teach Israel to continue in that faith. And that dependence upon rains is something into which their original dependence upon the Lord for the manna and things like that becomes transposed 
whether that's in the presentation of the Omer, the Feast of First Fruits, or in the ways that the feasts are connected both to agricultural events and to events in their deliverance from Egypt. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a crucial part of what's uh, what's going on here. It's because it, you think, uh, what's what? Why is the land superior? Why is uh, the promised land superior to Egypt? Doesn't seem like water supply is a superiority because it's you're depending on rains, which may or may not come. I mean, the Nile may have bad years, but the Nile is already always there. Um, so I think you're exactly right, Alistair, that the, the point that's being made is the dependence that Israel has in the land on the gift of heaven. Uh, this one of the puns that I notice in verse 12, uh, it's a land that Yahweh your God cares for. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always on it. This is just in the, just in the aftermath of talking about uh, the, the land drinking rain from heaven. Uh, ayin is not only the word for eye uh, that, that we see with, but also the word for the the eye or the opening of a spring springs are eyes in the Bible. So there's a, a play perhaps on that. The Lord is not just watching from heaven, but the Lord is reigning from heaven. And, and uh, the, the springs, the heavenly springs of the Lord are opened. You have this contrast between the earth water that uh, the groundwater that Israel relied on in Egypt and the heavenly water that comes in the land. Oh, I just wanted to mention a couple of commentators in uh, on verse 10, they're trying to figure out what it means to water something by foot. And there are various explanations of that, that you're using some kind of foot-propelled technology to get water up out of Egypt, or you're digging a trench with your foot or something. Um, the, the actual phrasing is water, water it with your foot, which has led some commentators to suggest, uh, I mean, you have, you have passages that talk about feet uh, as a euphemism for sexual organs. Um, cover the feet is a euphemism for uh, defecation or urination, and uh, the suggestion is that this is watering with the f- watering with the foot is not a reference to technology, but rather uh, to land that you irrigate by pissing on it. And the the connota- or the implication of that seems to be it's not that it's bad land, but that it's meager. It's it's there's not much of it. Uh, all you have in Egypt is land that you can water by pissing on it. It's no more than a vegetable garden. But once you get into land, the Lord is sending water from heaven, and you have a vast land that's watered from heaven with uh, hills and valleys uh, irrigated by rivers. Uh, and so the the contrast is uh, is between not just between ground and heavenly water, but between uh, the relative lack of fertile land in uh, Egypt and the the abundance of the land that they'll have when they get get into Canaan. Just continuing that idea of rain, it seems significant that this is really coming on the back of all the manna. So obviously the point of the manna is rather than providing you with one huge dollop of food in one go, there is just this constant reliance. You can't build up this store, you know, you collect enough for one day, etc. And And so the purpose of the manna was a couple of chapters ago. Um, it was to to humble Israel, to make them feel their weakness, feel their dependence. And here, the the rain from heaven, um, you know, particularly contrasted with the Nile, where you've, you've got all the water there, seems to be taking over that role. There, there is that constant dependence on God, and and when they uh, when Israel go astray, that the, the heavens would 
will be shut, you know, and, and, it, and it will dry up. But it's God has put them in this environment where, yeah, it's not the same as the wilderness, you know, it, it's it's rich, it's fertile, etc. And yet they're every bit as dependent upon the Lord as, as they were in the wilderness. The eyes of the Lord are kind of double-edged too. It's, he cares for the land, but he only cares for the land because his people are there. Um, and so the eyes of the Lord, are, he's a watcher. He evaluates, he sees. You can't hide from him. Um, and he will evaluate your your behavior, your faithfulness, which then is the next paragraph, basically 13 through 17. If you'll obey my commandments, uh, then he will give you rain, verse 14. But if you don't, if you turn aside and worship other gods, verse 17, then the anger of the Lord will shut up the heavens so that there'll be no rain. So that um, the implication here is that, yeah, Yahweh cares for the land, but the land can just as easily become barren and desolate uh, if you fail to keep, if you fail to guard his rules and his statutes and his commandments. It's, uh, I think it's significant that the, the specific blessings of the land in verse 14 are summarized as grain, new wine, and oil. Uh, that's, a, that's a recurring refrain in Deuteronomy and elsewhere is the, 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 uh, what the land produces, grain, new wine, and oil. Obviously, it's food, uh, staple food, grain, uh, a luxury food, wine, uh, maybe a maybe a luxury food, and also something for anointing and uh, and for uh, uh, the you know uh, uh, putting on your body in the oil. Uh, but also, these are the materials for temple service. If you're gonna if you're going to have a sacrificial system, then uh, the animal offerings can be accompanied by cakes of grain and libations of wine. Uh, oil is often part of the concoction, the confection, if if you will, of a, a grain offering, a minka. Uh, and so uh, what the land produces is what is going to be offered back to Yahweh in worship. Uh, and I think in, from a new covenant perspective, obviously we're in the, we're in the realm of Eucharist. Uh, what the land produces is what uh, are the elements of a, an ongoing uh, feast of bread and wine an ongoing feast of thanksgiving and gratitude. Um, and as long as Israel lives in obedience to the Lord, loves him with her whole heart, serves him with her whole heart, then uh, they will enjoy this continuous feast in the land. I wonder if part of what's going on with the land here has to do with the, um, really, the responsibility that um, Israel have. Um, in, in the translation I'm looking at here in verse 12, a land that the Lord your God cares for. And um, cares is a kind of unusual translation of the relevant verb. I, I, I would think it almost always has the sense, I don't know, to, to seek or, to, or to, to require of that that kind of thing. And, and I wonder if it is more that it's a land that God um, requires things of um you know the eyes of the lord are on it and as inhabitants of that land certain things were required of israel um god gave them this vineyard you know with 
hedges and a watchtower and and everything. And he he therefore required um uh kind of his his dues from it. And and I wonder if that's part of of what's going on here. Yeah, I think that would fit with what uh with the specific blessings that would fit with my suggestion that were uh, the specific blessings of the land are things that are Israel is going to offer to the Lord in worship. Uh, and so the Lord demanding things of the land, demanding things of Israel in the land uh, would seem to be, would seem to be part of that. Mm. We overarching this, we've, we've mentioned this a number of times as we've gone through the early chapters of Deuteronomy, overarching the situation that Israel is in or underlying it, if you will, is, um, the, the the original situation of Adam in the garden, Israel's being given a land that is a garden land that's emphasized here. It's the abundance of the land that's provided, uh, that the Lord provides. Uh, and, um, and the warning, of course, uh, goes along with that. If Israel is the new Adam in the garden, they should beware, guard, verse 16, guard that their hearts don't be deceived and they turn away after other gods. Don't be like Eve. Don't listen to uh, don't listen to deceiving spirits. Don't be misled by serpents, uh, or you'll be uh, you'll perish quickly quickly from the good land that the Lord is giving you. So that the reference to the good land goes back again to the creation account and the creation of the good world. Israel is established, being established in a good land within the fallen world, but it's a uh, not only a fulfillment of the original creation, but it's a foretaste of the renewed goodness of the world that will uh, come with the Messiah and with the consummation of everything. But if they don't, if they aren't faithful, if they don't, uh, if they are deceived and they turn away from the Lord after other gods, then they'll perish from the good land. They'll be excluded from their garden land. Uh, they'll be sent out east of Eden and uh, as they eventually are. Uh, and so that, that, that Adamic situation is, uh, is kind of running as a basso continuo under this uh, under this whole sermon, the antidote to all that, the antidote to wandering away, to being deceived, is to keep the Shema. And so, verses eighteen through twenty-one or so uh, repeat uh, what was said in chapter six. Uh, not only the command to uh, love Yahweh, uh, but also the command to impress these words on your heart, to bind them as signs on your hands, so that you. The work of your hand is determined by the word that the Yahweh has given. You put them as frontals between your eyes. Jeff has mentioned the eyes of Yahweh as eyes of scrutiny and judgment. And the word of the Lord between the eyes means that our, at least in part, that our eyes are being directed by the word of God and our judgments are being conformed to what he has said. And then it's not just the, the person who is impressed with the word, but the surrounding physical space. You're supposed to teach it at all times, and and it's supposed to be written on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so that uh, uh, so that nothing is forgotten. So the word is, uh, so you live by the word. When you go into the land, you live by the, what proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, and it's creating that kind of civilization or culture of the Shema that is the antidote to Israel's uh, deception and Israel's wandering. The promise to them, if they will in fact do that, which is mentioned in 18 through 21. If if you're careful to do all that, then verse 23, the Lord will drive out all these nations before you 
and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. And then this almost seems like an extension or an expansion of um, the promise of just the land of Palestine. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the uh, to the Lebanon and from the river to the Euphrates. Uh, so there's kind of an X there, a almost chiastic um, uh, extent of the territory to the Western Sea. So that's that's a pretty big area, uh, and I know commentators have, have noticed this. That this is not really accomplished until the time of of um, David and Solomon, but there's more there than just the land of Palestine um, that's promised to them. And maybe this is supposed to be a motivation. It's not going to stop with just this small land. My kingdom, my domain will expand. If you're faithful, that faithfulness will lead to an extension of the blessings and of the promises, not just to you, but to other nations as well. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think that's right. You're, uh, but that's also the verse 24 is also giving the dimensions of the land that are laid out in Genesis 15. I mentioned in the last episode that uh, chapter 10 ends with this reference to Israel becoming like the stars of heaven, which is the promise of the covenant making in Genesis 15. And then this, the dimensions that are given in verse 1124 are the same dimension. So this is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. But I, yeah, I, I do think that it's uh, you're, you're looking at something that's uh, uh, an expanded idea of what, what Israel is intended to inherit. Uh, and then that expansion, of course, continues as a, as a, a continuing blessing to Israel until you get to the new covenant where the sons of Abraham are heirs along with Abraham of the world. The, the chapter ends with this, as I mentioned at the outset, with this Moses presenting blessings and curses to Israel. This is the first time that, I think it's the first time in the, in the Bible that blessing and curse has been used in this sense. Uh, Abraham has promised that those who bless him will be blessed, those who curse him will be cursed. So that combination of blessing and curse comes up already with Abraham. That's part of the promise that's carried on to Israel. But the idea of setting two ways uh, before Israel, a way of blessing and a way of cursing, that's going to be uh, that's going to occupy the latter chapters of Deuteronomy. And it's introduced here, I think, for the first time in the Bible. That um, uh, And it's both of them are kind of conditional. Uh, both of them are reinforced by conditional statements. If you hear, then you'll receive the blessing. If you refuse to hear and turn aside after other gods and listen to other gods, then you'll receive the curses. That choice, that stark choice between life and death, that stark choice between two ways uh, is being presented here. Uh, and then it's not just at, on the plains of Moab. That choice is going to be a constant choice before Israel from generation to generation. And one of the signs of that is that the blessing and the curse are going to be imprinted, as it were, on the land. Uh, when they go in, they're supposed to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. The blessing is going to be spoken on and uh, impressed on Mount uh, Gerizim, the curse on Mount Ebal. Uh, and the the land itself, is those mountains are going to be constant reminders of the choices that Israel has. Which mountain are they going to gravitate to? 
Are they going to gravitate to the mountain of blessing, which is involves keeping the commandments that are given at Sinai and involves uh, keeping the covenant that's made at uh, Moab, or are they going to uh, gravitate to Mount Ebal, which is uh, following other gods and uh, being cursed? Uh, that choice is going to be impressed on the land itself, uh, and Israel is going to be in, uh, have this constant topographical reminder of that choice. Yeah, maybe this doesn't need to be said, but I've found it helpful because I think some people misunderstand the choice here that Israel has to make between blessing and cursing. It's not as if they're neutral. This is somewhat obvious, but people do miss this. This is not some kind of covenant of works where the people in a neutral kind of state, if they obey, then, you know, they'll draw down God's favor uh, and his love. uh, And if they disobey, they'll, they'll incur his wrath. No, rather this is, they are his people. They've been redeemed. They're loved. They're cared for. They're coming into a land as we've seen that the Lord has given them and is going to be uh, uh, generous in the rain and in the way he uh, he takes care of them and takes care of the land. And what they have to do is, is, is just keep it, is guard it, guard what they have, not achieve something they don't have, but be faithful in everything that the Lord has given them. Um, and so the, the blessings are always from from Mount Gerizim, you know, you, you've been gifted all of this. And so just stay on the road, stay on the path, keep it up. Uh, if you don't, if you turn aside, then then you will be cursed. And and that's the same, the same thing is true. This is not any different than what's in what we would call the new covenant or the new world is uh, you're baptized, you're brought into the new community and, and you inherit by grace, all of these blessings and you have to, to keep faith. You have to, to stay and, and be faithful and continue in the faith. If you don't, then you're going to be in trouble. Um, so for Israel or for the people of the church, the blessings are gifted to us by grace without our merit, without our, you know, achieving them. But yet still, there is the necessity for us to to continue in the faith, as Paul will say in Colossians 1, for example. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.